Hi, everyone, and welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. You have tuned in to our series on Revelation, and boy, is this a fun episode to tune into today. We are covering chapter five, one of my favorite chapters, actually. This is one of those chapters that is going to give you such a powerful, amazing, beautiful image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I just can't wait to get going on it. So I just want to remind us that, you know, as we came out of chapter four, we were sharing in John's experience of this holy heavenly worship service, right? And this was worship that was directed towards God the Father. But in chapter five, we experience a shift to where the worship will now be directed to the Lamb, to Jesus Christ. And there is a great reason for that. So what you don't want to miss is that in both chapters, they're both being worshiped, but they are worthy of the same praise. And that's beautiful. In this episode, we're going to look at how Jesus came to share the throne with his father, because that's a big question a lot of people have. We're also going to discuss the significance of the scroll with the seven seals, because there is some really neat things with that as well. But also the authority the father has given the son to close out this age. And I love that part. So folks, we are diving into an extraordinary chapter. I'm so excited. So let's read chapter five. This is going to take a couple minutes because it's a little long. So just bear with me. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and as such are as in the sea and all that is in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Amen. Wow, 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 wow. 
what an incredible chapter of the Bible. We have the privilege of having a glimpse into these two chapters, four and five, into the throne room of God. He has let us in on a beautiful heavenly secret of where he resides. I am so excited to go through this chapter. And I think that when we get through this episode, you are going to be so encouraged and strengthened in your faith and feel so honored to be in the family of God. Wow. So get your pen ready, friends, because today I just want you to make note of multiple scripture references I'm going to give you, and hopefully you can have time to read through those scripture references later. It all ties in together, and it's really important to connect the dots. First, I want to point out something before we really get going in both chapter four and five, that there is an emphasis on the word throne. In fact, it's mentioned over 16 times, and that ought to tell you that this is where we need to always keep our focus, on the throne of God, which is why we are told by Paul in Colossians to keep the right perspective on things at all times, right? Set your mind on things above, not on the earth. But we tend to let the events on earth suck the life right out of us sometimes, don't we? Yet the majesty of God's throne cannot be expressed enough. That is probably why Paul wants us to keep our focus there. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places, my friends, and there is nothing to compare to the throne of God. Nothing. There is nothing on earth to compare it to. There's no earthly building. There is no temple. There is no church, no matter how glorious it is. There's no castle. There's nothing like it on the face of the earth. And for us to have even a small glimpse into the beauty and splendor and grandeur of the throne of God. Wow, what a blessing, what a privilege. And so these two chapters are dedicated to the throne of God, and they give us a glimpse to where we are to be setting our minds at all times. And this is not only where our Lord reigns, the Father, but chapter 5 reveals that this is also where the Lamb reigns, where Jesus reigns right now. How? How is it that they are sharing the throne? How is it that the son or the lamb can share the throne with the father? Have you ever thought about that? Well, let me try to give you an earthly picture. It just might help a little bit. It doesn't do it justice, but it just might help because I'm a visual person. Whenever there was trouble, I'm going to talk about the Roman Empire for a minute. Whenever there was trouble in a distant land in the Roman Empire, the emperor would send his son out to go deal with whatever the trouble was, providing he had a son. The son, of course, would take the army with him. Now, if the son was triumphant, he would return to his home with a grand entry. And I always picture this from the movie, The Gladiator, the commander, what is named Commodus. um, He was the bad guy who killed his father, actually. Anyway, when he's arriving back in Rome and it is quite the procession and there's flowers being thrown at him and there's great fanfare and crowds cheering, all of that. Well, this is a small picture of what it probably was like. If the son was triumphant, he would go first in this big procession with his chariots and horses and other chariots would then follow behind him. He would be the one leading though. And then following that would be all the faithful soldiers that fought with him. And then following behind the soldiers would be those who were taken prisoners and they would be in chains. And then behind the prisoners, you would typically have the slaves who were usually carrying the booty or all the treasures, everything they confiscated from the other army. 
And so when the son arrived in Rome, victorious, the emperor would give the son a seat at his right hand on the throne. And in some cases, the emperor would actually abdicate his throne, giving his son the right to rule. And then they would take all the booty, all the treasures, and they would disperse it out to the people. Now, I want you to picture this as it pertains to Christ. Paul expressly says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, write that down. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we received a gift from Jesus Christ, which is the gift of grace, right? And the scripture continues. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Jesus was victorious over Satan, right? The father sent him into enemy territory to bring victory and justice. And he did just that on his own. Remember what he said after he was arrested? Are you not aware that I can call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Matthew 26, 53. Jesus was victorious on his own. The son of the Roman Empire needed an army, but Jesus was victor all by himself. Paul puts it another way in Colossians 2 when he says that Jesus' victory made us alive together with him because he forgave all of our trespasses. Remember, it says he wiped out that handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He took it out of the way, nailed it to the cross, and then it says what? He disarmed the principalities and powers And he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This imagery that Paul used, people would be able to identify with who were living under the Roman Empire. They could visualize what Paul was saying, that the Son of God was victorious. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. Do you see this picture? Just as God the Father identified himself as Jehovah Nisi or Yahweh Nisi in Exodus, which means God is victor. This was when Moses defeated the Amalekites. Remember the story where Moses' arms are being held up? Well, Jesus is also victor. He too is Jehovah Nisi or Yahweh Nisi. He is victor over death and sin and the grave. They both share victory. Jesus made us alive together with him. He wiped out the database that was on us. He nailed it to the cross and he sits in triumphant victory right now. And therefore, so should we. Friend, if you're still beating yourself up over sin of some kind, lay it down once and for all. Lay it at Jesus' feet and walk in the triumph that he provided for us. That's why he can sit in perfect peace and majesty on his throne. It's finished. Psalm 47, oh, clap your hands, oh, you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. He led captivity captive. That means he's got the prisoners behind him. And he made them a public spectacle. Can you imagine what this looked like? Just like a Roman son would do. He made the enemy a public spectacle. He paraded him in front of everybody else. Can you imagine that in the spiritual realm? What that looked like to the angels and all other beings in the cosmos and the universe when they would see all of these people, all these things, these beings being led away captive. They were made a spectacle. Paul is bringing in language 
that ties right into the Roman Empire. Jesus became the conqueror over sin, death, and the grave, as I mentioned. And then he gave gifts to men. He gave us the gift of eternal life with him, should we choose to accept it. He gave us that gift of grace that we just read about. He gave gifts from the Holy Spirit to edify us. Edify means to build, to build up, to strengthen the church and ourselves while we are separated from him. It's a marvelous picture. He came in triumphant entry and behind him is the enemy. No matter how many wars are started, no matter how many Christians are murdered, no matter how many times the accuser of the brethren accuses us through Jesus Christ, our King, the victor, they still lose. They may be able to kill the body, but they cannot kill our soul, my friend. Through Christ, we have the victory to be overcomers in all things. And Paul makes another reference in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, which we mentioned. Why? Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Paul makes references to this victory, to this triumph, through several epistles. So now what happens in chapter 5? This chapter opens up with John talking about a scroll that is in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, the Father. And it's written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then a search begins. A search for someone in heaven and earth, someone worthy to break the seals and open the scroll to see what's written. Remember, this is how things were kept secret by people. They were rolled up and sealed with that wax. Remember, well, we need someone worthy to open it, to be able to see what's on there. The significance of the scroll becomes apparent in light of events. John, by either instinct or by revelation, knows what this scroll's about. It's about the end of the world. On it is written the program which will bring to an end the age of earthly history in which we live. And breaking its seals begins the countdown. Until this happens, the world must continue in its present state. The present evil age, it must be closed out, my friends, before the age to come can open. We have got to come to grips with that in the body of Christ. At some point, things have to end here. Are we willing to go and endure what needs to take place for that new age to come? There must be a decisive termination of the kingdom of the world if the kingdom of God is to be universally established on the earth. I mean, many of us like to quote right now today that shaking that takes place in Hebrews 12. Well, are we really ready for that? Because Hebrews 12 says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on the earth, Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. That's exactly what needs to happen with these seals. 
When these seals are open, the countdown begins for the end of the age, the end of history on the earth, my friends. It's this removal of things that are made so that an unshakable kingdom can come and prevail. This age must draw to a close at some point for God's kingdom to remain. And that is why John wept and wept in frustration and grief when no one was found worthy to set this in motion. But why was this a problem? God himself had released many judgments on the earth throughout history, right? Why not these final ones? Why isn't he the one that is worthy? Because God wants a human being to open it. Everything he has done to redeem the earth from the very beginning was through a human source. He had entrusted or delegated most major world events to human beings. And he even entrusted that to Jesus in order to redeem humanity back to him. And so now, of course, he wants a human being to start the countdown, to break those seals, to unwrap the scroll and let loose the final events of history. He's on the throne, but he's not found worthy to open the scroll to release final judgments. So who is worthy? Well, he will not entrust those events to an unworthy human being. So that should give us all a little bit of peace, right? Some random man is not going to bring down the world, my friends. God won't allow it. He will only allow a person to break the seals who will not be corrupted by the power. And John weeps because if they can find no one worthy, history can't be ended. And we want someone to bring this evil age to an end. We want that. But the thought that it might, might not end causes John to weep. And so the only one who is worthy is someone who was both a lion and a lamb. Someone who was fully man and fully God. The lamb is male and fully mature, as was every lamb used in sacrifice. That's what it means by a one-year-old lamb, Exodus 12:5. He would actually have been called a ram, which is what we should really be saying. And he has seven horns one more than Jacob's sheep, and it signifies perfect power. And he has seven eyes, signifying perfect oversight. Yet it has been slain as a sacrifice. The lion is the king of the jungle, right? But here it is the lion of the tribe of Judah, rooted in the Davidic dynasty. So we have a unique combination of the sovereign lion and a sacrificial lamb, which corresponds to the coming king and the suffering servant predicted by the prophets. And that's in Isaiah chapters 9 through 11 and Isaiah chapters 42 through 53. Jesus, my friends, did not become a Jew simply for 33 and a half years. He identifies himself in this chapter with the Jewish people eternally. And while John is weeping, one of the elders says to him, don't weep. God has found a human being he can trust. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open it. God trusts his son. He's the only one who can properly handle all of the power needed and required to close out the end of the age. That is why we do not need to fear 
And he's called by that interesting name, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That is his title in eternity. Judah is the name from which we get the word Jew. In Hebrew, Judah is Yehuda, and Jew is Yehudi. There is only one syllable different. That's his title. So friends, when we see rampant anti-Semitism throughout the earth, we had better give careful heed to our own attitudes because all of us, we're going to be judged. Listen to our series we did on why Israel. It explains why we need to care about Israel, why we need to care about the Jewish people, and why we need to care about the covenant God made with them and us because we're all tied in together, one new man, right? And it is clear in Matthew 25 that there is going to be a tremendous worldwide upsurge of anti-Semitism. We already feel the undercurrents of it, but God is going to permit it. If he spoke about it, it will come to pass. And maybe it's to test us all. So figure out today where you'll land on that issue because Jesus, he's identifying himself in this chapter with the Jewish tribe, the tribe of Judah. And he continues to do so throughout Revelation, even to the very end of the book. You know, Ascension Day, that takes place in Acts chapter 1, by the way, is such a beautiful day that we just don't talk about enough. That's when Jesus ascended into heaven. It's where God the Father handed authority. It's where God the Father handed over authority in heaven and on earth to his conquering son. That's what happened on that day. And so this is not just about what he is, but what he has done. That's what makes him worthy to open the scroll and release the troubles that will bring the world to an end. And that word end can mean two things, termination or consummation. Well, he's going to bring the latter because he has prepared a people, the saints of God, to take over the government of the world. And he purchased them at the price of his own blood, this chapter says, out of every ethnic group in the human race. It's so powerful. And he has trained us in royal and priestly duties. That is something we just do not teach on in the church, that we are a holy and a royal priesthood. There's so much to that. And it's found throughout all the epistles. He's trained us up in those duties and preparing us for reigning on the earth. That is why we are called ambassadors for Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. Why else does Jesus share the parable of the talents, my friends? To those who are faithful, he's going to make rulers in his kingdom. To those who squander what he gave them, guess what? He'll take some of those things back and give them to somebody else. But this is what it's all about. Only someone who has done all of this, is able to begin the series of disasters that will bring all other regimes down. He is the one the Father has entrusted with all the power to close out the end of the age. I can't say that enough. Meditate on that for a while. It's no wonder thousands upon thousands of angels agree in melodic jubilation That is right to give him this power. It is right to give him glory. It is right to give him wealth and strength and honor and praise. And that all creatures join in with this same anthem. Every creature on earth, under the earth, in the oceans, in the heavens. 
join in with this declaration. And it is for both the Father and the Son, to he who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. This is magnificent. That is why it says God exalted him above every name that is named. That is why at the name of Yeshua, Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of all things, every creature in heaven, every creature on the earth and every creature under the earth, because he is now exalted above all. What a picture. Nothing reveals their divinity more. And boy, we need that picture because as these seals are now about to be loosed, we are going to see things come upon the earth where men's hearts will fail in fear of them. So hold fast. Keep your mind set on the things that are above. It'll keep you in peace. It'll keep you not fearing. I hope this blessed you today. Take care.